0: Welcome to the Holistic Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Courtney Snyder, a physician and holistic child and adult psychiatrist. Today is part three of a four part series on our forgotten foundation how our first three years and early attachment experiences shape us. In the last episode, I talked about many factors that can impact this formative time in both our and our children's lives. I talked about how This time can impact the expression of certain genes, and how these factors can also impact the development of the left and right hemispheres of our brain. Today, I'll focus on the attachment spectrum, how attachment is measured, and give information to help you recognize where you may fall on the attachment spectrum. I'll discuss the four types of attachment styles that have been described, and provide tools that can help move all of us towards more secure attachment. So let's start with remembering that as humans, we are all ultimately here to connect. Our survival as a species depends on this. If we are lucky enough to have attachment experiences that result in our being securely attached... Then we will learn to trust others, we'll feel worthy to receive, we'll feel the world is a relatively safe place, and we'll expect our lives to unfold in ways that ultimately will bring us meaning, purpose, and connection, even if there are difficulties along the way. Think of attachment as a spectrum, with secure attachment being in the middle, and avoidant and dismissive attachment being to the far left and an anxious and preoccupied attachment being towards the right. So again, in the middle lies the greatest ability we have to connect with others while still having autonomy and the ability to express our feelings and not be overwhelmed by them. Know, too, that a toddler's attachment style, which can be measured, as I'll discuss, can predict their attachment style as an adult and even how they will respond to their own children's attachment needs. Reversely, an adult's attachment style reflects their attachment style when they were a toddler and is a window into how able their parents were, given their own attachment and life circumstances, to meet their needs. I do believe, and I'll add this to from my own perspective, to these comments on attachment theory, I do believe that these tendencies can be exacerbated or unmasked by how inflamed or how toxic we are at the time. So it is arguable that if particular parts of our brain are well-wired through a secure attachment, we may be less vulnerable to attachment-related issues, such as problems relating to others or problems with emotional regulation When we have toxicity or inflammation, it is also arguable that a secure attachment would lower our vulnerability to becoming toxic or inflamed. Still, I believe that those who have a secure attachment and enough genetic loading could have what looks like an attachment-related problem. What they primarily have is a problem with toxicity or inflammation. Someone with toxicity, for example, could go from thriving in their relationships to not wanting to be with people and also losing their emotional expressiveness. Either way, the needs for healing are the same. Address inflammation, address toxicity, and address the neuronal pathways that may need to be brought back online. So how do we measure attachment? There are various tools and I'm going to focus on the two that are most well known. The first that's used in toddlers and the second for adults. The researcher and psychologist Dr. Mary Ainsworth came up with the strange situation and you can see videos of this on YouTube as a way to measure attachment in toddlers. The situation as it's called, is set in a room. And basically, it is an infant or toddler, rather, that's playing in the presence of their mother. A stranger enters the room and plays with the baby. The mother leaves. The mother and the child reunite, and then the stranger leaves. And then the mother leaves the child alone. The stranger returns and the mother and child then reunite, and the stranger leaves. The child is being evaluated on how they are with the absence of the mother and the return of the mother and how they engage or not engage with the stranger. And this is based on what's appropriate for a toddler. Toddlers will fall into four attachment styles, essentially. And again, keep thinking about spectrum, but basically they measured four styles. One was a secure attachment where the child would basically seek comfort from their mother and they were glad when their mother returned. Uh, The avoidant attachment style, the child didn't seek comfort from their mother The anxious or ambivalent attachment, the child was distressed when their parent left and angry and uh, not comforted by the parent's return. I'll take a deeper dive into each of these. The fourth type is disorganized, which is the least common, and that was where there was somewhat of a dissociated impact on the child. They were seemingly confused and cognitively checking out. Parallel attachment styles have been found in adult research. Psychologist Dr. Mary Main's adult attachment interview is one of a number of tools that have been used to measure attachment in adults. And basically, with this particular tool, the interviewer invites the adult to describe their attachment relationships and experiences of loss, rejection, and separation. So though they may not directly remember their earliest life in the first three years, they would be talking about their attachment relationships in their childhood and even into adulthood. And what is listened for is not the events described, but in the way the events are remembered and organized. For example, someone with a secure attachment wouldn't necessarily describe their childhood and their parents as being perfect or ideal. Someone with an insecure, especially an avoidant attachment style, might. A securely attached person would be able to give more nuanced, flexible, and real descriptions that would include both positive and negative um, descriptions. And then someone who has an anxious attachment, they may become quite overwhelmed as they're describing events related to attachment. So I'm going to talk about the four attachment styles, and for each one I'm going to talk about what this could look like in a toddler and in an adult, uh, what the um, beliefs can be, what the relationship behaviors can look like, and provide tools that can be helpful to move someone, again, more towards that secure place in the middle where there's Good emotional regulation, an ability to be autonomous, and an ability to have connection. So let's start with secure attachment, or what's also called autonomous. And this includes 60 to 65% of people. Some studies would say this is as low as 40% in children in the U.S. Toddlers who are described as secure would be expected to have caregivers who are quick to respond, who are sensitive and consistent, or at least consistent enough. In the strange situation, the toddler is able to separate from the parent, seek comfort from the parent when they're frightened, and the return of the parent in the strange situation is met with positive emotions. So clearly they prefer their parent to strangers, which is, again, developmentally appropriate. The survival belief is expected to be that my needs will always be met, that the world is a safe place generally. And the prediction is that as an adult, this toddler will have trusting, lasting relationships, they'll tend to have good self-esteem, they'll be comfortable sharing feelings with friends and partners, and they can seek out social support. As an adult, this person who is securely attached is also, like I said, called autonomous, they are comfortable with intimacy and autonomy in close relationships. So it's that fine balance of being able to be close, but also being able to recognize a separateness. They're self-confident, they resolve conflicts constructively, and in the adult attachment interview, they can access a range of positive and negative feelings about their attachment experiences and their thoughts and memories about their parents are coherent and flexible. I was trying to think of examples for these different attachment styles, and interestingly, when it comes to songs and movies, you won't see as many secure attachments, especially in the movies, because it's less interesting to people than seeing a movie about someone with an avoidant or anxious attachment style who is going through their journey and their struggles to find their way to that more secure place. But one song, or lyric rather, that to me does seem fitting with a secure attachment would be from an Elton John song, I hope you don't mind that I put this down in words, how wonderful life is while you're in the world. So this would be fitting, I think, for someone who has a secure attachment that they are not necessarily clinging too tightly to another person but they're expressing joy and gratitude for the very existence of this person in the world and as i said i'll comment on some a couple other lyrics as we get into the to the other styles so my hypothesis which i'll do for each of these attachment styles is that those with secure attachment are less likely to be impacted by methylation imbalances. Now we come by our methylation imbalances for the most part genetically, and we inherit those, and we can have incidences such as a toxic exposure or a traumatic event in our lives that could tip us into a methylation imbalance but we could also have the genes for a methylation imbalance that never get expressed because of a secure attachment. And again, this is hypothetical. I would also hypothesize that there is a healthier functioning of the right and left hemispheres in, when we are securely attached and that as far as our autonomic nervous system, and if you'd like to learn about this, I talk about it in the vagus Nerve podcast, um, I would say that when we have a secure attachment style that we have good vagal tone, meaning we more easily access the parasympathetic, that rest and digest part of our autonomic nervous system. The second type of attachment style that I'll discuss is The avoidant or dismissive attachment style, and this is seemingly in about 15 to 20% of people, and some would argue that it's increasing and that the percentages are actually higher than this. Expectation would be that a caregiver would be distant and engaging, likely because of their own attachment experience, and I would argue also because of their own biochemical tendencies. In the strange situation, the toddler would avoid the parent, not seek comfort or contact from them, and show little or no preference between the parent and the stranger. And the toddler doesn't tend to explore and is emotionally distant. The survival belief would be that my needs are unlikely to be met and that I'm essentially on my own here. The prediction is that as an adult, they will have problems with intimacy, they will not be motivated towards social and romantic relationships, and they will be unable or unwilling to share thoughts and feelings with others. I think a really great example in terms of music lyrics would be the song Desperado. And I will put a link to a nice breakdown of the lyrics on my Facebook page, Uh, that another uh, website, Relationship Coach, really broke it down beautifully. And so just to give one of the lyrics from that song, if you know it, and again, I would encourage you to listen to it closely from an attachment perspective. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. Again, this is the experience of someone who as a human, desires relationships, but their survival mechanism that they've acquired early on in their life was to not seek connection. Someone with this dismissive attachment style, so in in toddlers it's called avoidant, in in adult it's called dismissive, and with this attachment style, an individual can be compulsively self-reliant, Distant in relationships, less aware of emotions and bodily sensations, they can downplay the importance of intimate relationships and emotions. And in the adult attachment interview, they may describe painful events with attachment figures in contradictory ways. They may idealize their parents and their childhood, even while discussing what to others would seem to be painful events. There is a higher incidence of obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, schizoid personality, narcissistic personality, antisocial personality, eating disorders, substance abuse and dependence, and depression and anxiety. So all of these are associated with under-methylation. So though the attachment world in terms of research, is really looking at this from a purely relational perspective and how it's shaped by early relationships, I would argue that it's also likely very much impacted by methylation. And while we may be, for example, under-methylated, our parents could be under-methylated too. So that could also be impacting why Some of this is so transgenerational. But I do think that those who have a dismissive or avoidant attachment style, like people that are under-methylated, they have lower neurotransmitter activity. And uh, this is my hypothesis. And this lack of neurotransmitter activity could explain a lack of emotional expressiveness. It could explain... Even sensory seeking for some people, and some of the addictive behaviors, you know, and a, a desire to sort of feel and to access sensation, uh, and that can happen through in maladaptive ways through addiction. It can also explain problems with concentration, endurance that we see with undermethylation. These individuals may also have a diminished functioning of the right hemisphere. Because again, I've talked about this in previous podcasts. Undermethylation does appear to be associated with more of these left hemisphere tendencies. So if you are have a dismissive attachment style and have less emotional expressiveness, less social relatedness, that could in part be because of diminished functioning of the right hemisphere and an overfunctioning of the left hemisphere. And then as far as the autonomic nervous system, this could be marked by a high degree of under-arousal. So when under threat, instead of fight or flight, or uh, that sort of more obvious sense of threat, these individuals, I suspect, go more into a Uh, dorsal vagal shutdown which again will make more sense if you're able to listen to my vagus nerve podcast or if you're familiar with uh, dr stephen porges polyvagal theory so as far as needs and skills interventions as with anyone who does not have a secure attachment i would recommend that they consider working with a psychotherapist who's knowledgeable in these areas who can help them make sense of their childhood, help them recognize addictive behaviors if they have those, and consider if that may be sensory seeking, or are they avoiding feelings, and or are they avoiding uh, connecting with people. A therapist could be helpful in raising awareness about sensations in the body, increasing emotional awareness, learning how to express thoughts and feelings to another person, and really developing a vocabulary for feelings, and learning that to be human involves being vulnerable. And there's nothing more vulnerable than being an infant and then a toddler. Vulnerability, and I love how Brene Brown describes it as ultimately courage. So if we can learn to be vulnerable with another human being... That is really where we're learning to connect, learning specific tools to increase social engagement, how to make eye contact, to be present with people, to listen well, to again, share your vulnerability, share your mistakes, your failures with those that you trust and pay attention and learn from those people who are emotionally expressive and who do socially engage with people. Ideally, choose partners who have a secure attachment style or who are intentional about their own personal growth and or seek couples therapy. It's not uncommon for someone with an avoidant attachment style to find themselves with someone with an anxious or preoccupied attachment style. And I'll talk about that style next. And you could see where a lot of Different types of issues could evolve with both of these insecure attachment styles. And then shift attention from the details to the big picture, from the linear to the expansive, from the rational to the intuitive. So I talk a lot about this on my podcast that addresses undermethylation and the and how to access the right hemisphere. So the third attachment style is the ambivalent or preoccupied attachment style. This appears to be in about 10 to 15% of individuals. And relative to the last attachment style, which is more dismissive and avoidant, this is a more of an overwhelmed, um, high-anxiety high type of attachment style. So the expectation for a toddler... And in toddlers, it's called ambivalent. The caregiver is described as inconsistent, sometimes sensitive, other times neglectful, likely because of their own attachment experience. In this strange situation, the toddler may be wary of strangers, may become severely distressed when the parent leaves, and not comforted by the parents returning. The toddler is essentially anxious, insecure, and angry. The survival belief is that I can't rely on my needs being met. The prediction is that as an adult, they will be reluctant to become close to others. They'll worry that their partners don't love them. They'll become distraught when the relationship ends. And the prediction as adults is that they will have a relative Absence of structure for regulating emotions around the relationships. Trying to find a lyric for this one, and I welcome anyone who has ideas, please send them my way, would be the temptation song, Ain't Too Proud to Beg. And the lyric, I know you want to leave me, but I refuse to let you go. If I have to beg and plead for your sympathy, I don't mind because you mean that much to me ain't too proud to beg. The adult with a preoccupied attachment style would be described as overly invested and involved in close relationships. They're dependent on others for self-worth, they're demanding, and they're, they have basically a needy approach to others. In the adult attachment interview, again, they will be overwhelmed with emotions associated with early attachment experiences. As far as associated brain-related conditions, these adults will have higher incidences of histrionic and borderline personality disorders. Depression, if it is present, is marked by sadness as opposed to apathy, which could be more the mark of an avoidant or dismissive type of attachment style. And anxiety, if present, is quite obvious, whereas anxiety with an avoidant or dismissive type of attachment style is less obvious. And so this could be more of a high, high anxiety or panic. And if substance abuse or addiction is present, this is an attempt to dampen emotional states as opposed to sensory seeking, which I described with the avoidant style. So, my hypothesis for this attachment style, if we look at how does this intersect with neurophysiology and biochemistry, I would say that these individuals have higher neurotransmitter activity, and this could be related to mass cell activation, or it could be even related to overmethylation. And it may even be related to particular genetic vulnerabilities that impact the breakdown of certain neurotransmitters. This high neurotransmitter state could explain um, problems regulating emotions and the amplification of anxiety in social relationships. I would also hypothesize that these individuals have less left hemispheric functioning, Relative to the right, their right hemispheres may be over-functioning and they have less ability to regulate and organize and think linearly um, certainly relative to those with uh, avoidant or dismissive attachment. As far as the autonomic nervous system, they may have high sympathetic activity, meaning they're much more likely to go into or be in a state of fight or flight. And this has been shown in uh, measures of those with uh, borderline personality disorder. So the needs here are different, as opposed to sort of growing expressiveness and um, and connection. The need here is to build structure and to build routine and to lower reactivity and to ultimately also build autonomy. So working again with a therapist could help someone make sense of their childhood, build structure into their life to develop routine so that their emotions don't derail their day or their week or their life. It can help them increase body awareness and how certain thoughts may lead them to emotional overwhelm It could help with lowering reactivity. It could also help with shifts in attention. In this case, when experiencing fear of rejection or abandonment, one might need to consider alternate narratives. Instead of thinking that someone is abandoning them as an adult, it may be that someone just hasn't called yet because they have something else going on that has nothing to do with that person. Um, they also may need to learn how to set appropriate boundaries. And like anything, this can take practice, and it can often need to start with one's immediate family before they're able to apply it to other relationships. And ideally, in choosing partners, again, choosing a partner who has a secure attachment or someone who's intentionally working on their own personal growth or even seeking couples therapy. I do go into more tools and interventions for each of these insecure attachment styles on my website. If you go to the blog page, it's the last blog that is about attachment. The last attachment style that is um, less common, but the disorganized or unresolved attachment style, which is felt to be in 10 to 15% of individuals, And this is an attachment style that does not fit completely into the avoidant or anxious and could likely fall on either end of the spectrum, but it's marked by confusion and dissociation, seemingly secondary to trauma. The expectation is that the caregiver would be extreme, erratic, perhaps frightening. They may alternate between being passive or intrusive. In this strange situation, the toddler may appear depressed, angry, um, completely passive or non-responsive. And again, their behaviors are not easily classified in any of the three previous styles that I've described. As an adult, it is expected that they would have unresolved mourning or trauma related to early life events... They may be very dependent on others, but avoid intimacy due to fear of rejection. They may have low self-esteem, have high attachment anxiety, and have cognitive and emotional disorientation, confusion, or even dissociation. My thoughts on this, again, and how it intersects with some of our biochemistry and neurophysiology is that there's faulty neuronal communication between the left and right hemispheres from inconsistent, confusing, and traumatizing experiences. The needs will overlap with the previously mentioned insecure attachment styles, but also need to involve more specific interventions to address trauma. And so specific trauma therapies could include EMDR, or others that allow one to become grounded in the moment and in their body as they're processing some of the events in their lives. And again, I have more information on my website. Wherever we fall on the attachment spectrum, know that our ability to tolerate or learn to tolerate vulnerability is really the key to the kingdom, as they say. So using Our precious energy to be avoiding all mistakes, to try to be perfect, to avoid failure, or to try to control the outcome of situations, is the opposite of getting comfortable with vulnerability. So this work can start out feeling very hard, but quickly our brains can start to rewire to start to experience trust, security, and intimacy, and ultimately joy, It takes nurturing that inner child, it takes being both that inner parent and recognizing the needs of our inner child to do this work. I'd like to end with a quote from a book I'm reading and would highly recommend by Brene Brown, Atlas of the Heart, Mapping Meaningful Connection and the Language of Human Experience. In a world where perfectionism, pleasing, and proving are used as armor to protect our egos and our feelings, it takes a lot of courage to show up and be all in when we can't control the outcome. It also takes discipline and self-awareness to understand what to share and with whom. Vulnerability is not oversharing, it's sharing with people who have earned the right to hear our stories and our experiences." Vulnerability is not weakness. It is our greatest measure of courage. In the next podcast, I'll talk about how attachment disruption presents itself in children, what symptoms look like in children, and how we can strengthen the foundation for our children, even if they're our adult children. So please feel free to send me any comments or questions on my website or on Facebook where I'll be posting related articles, quotes uh, to this topic. If you know someone you think this would be helpful for, please share. Many people, if they could understand their own attachment style, could certainly work towards healthier relationships that they could benefit from and that their children could benefit from. I wish you a year full of vulnerability and connection and secure attachment and a feeling of security within your own autonomy. And I'll look forward to connecting with you in the next podcast. Take care.